Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, we interact with this world around us, our environment, even our internal environment, two ways. The first is through bottom-up attention, and that's the more primitive, ancient type of attention that uh, evolved really for our survival. So things in the environment that are very salient, you know, very novel, um, demand our attention independent of our goals. And that's what allowed our ancient, even our primordial ancestors, even single-celled organisms of which we, you know, evolved from to, uh, to sense the environment, toxins and nutrients is where we started. And, you know, it, it has allowed us to survive. Uh, but we have another type of attention called top-down attention, where we direct our limited resources of our minds to uh, aspects of the world that we make the decision to engage with. And this doesn't have to be the most important or the most uh, novel elements, right? So we can reject those bottom-up more ancient influences on our attention and impose our own goals uh, upon it. And so this ability to have top-down control over how we process the world around us is what allowed humans to create technology and society and language and, you know, art, music, everything uh, is this ability to sort of break the bonds, I would say, that enslave us or enslave other animals to the environment where they just reflexively respond to it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Adam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying before we hit record here, uh, I kept coming across your name in virtually every book that I had read on the subject of attention and dealing with distraction. And given that this is a subject that uh, I've dedicated a good amount of my, my upcoming book uh, to, I figured it was kind of a no-brainer to have the person who's the authority on the subject matter uh, here as a guest on Unmistakable Creative. But before we get into your work, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Huh, that's a good question. So I grew up in Queens. Um, my parent, Neither of my parents actually went to college. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. We, They weren't uh, all that um, well off uh, when it comes to money when they grew up. And so they had to start working right after high school. Uh, they, my mom uh, was a bookkeeper, or still is, for her whole career, and my dad was a um, uh, engineer for the uh, uh, the Mass Transit Authority for the subway system, um, and they both still work. Um, so you know they they were not in the academic path uh, that I wound up following, like science and medicine, uh, but they really valued education, both uh, and, and instilled it in both myself and my sisters. And so I think that that's really the influence that they um, had on me was just a, a strong uh, respect for uh, educating yourself and also a love for science. Although they didn't engage in it professionally, uh, my dad um, and my mom uh, were both fans of it. I remember as a kid watching uh, 
Carl Sagan's Cosmos, um, you know, series with him and just taking trips to the Museum of Natural History in, in Manhattan and just being blown away by uh, science. And they really instilled uh, that excitement. How old were you when that happened? I was around seven or eight when I first started getting um, attached uh, and never letting go to this idea of being a scientist someday. <laughs> and how did that manifest for the rest of your childhood? Like what kinds of things did you do in terms of extracurricular activities? Like how did your parents encourage and nurture this interest? And what would you say to parents who are listening uh, about this experience? Well, you know, it was it was unusual thing for me to latch on to, given that we didn't know any scientists or doctors really growing up. And um, so I didn't really I didn't have a, a real live person besides people I saw on TV that were scientists. And so they encouraged me to as I got a little older and was able to you know travel on the subway on my own, I wound up going. Well, I guess the first thing they I don't know if they encouraged me, but they sort of permitted me to go to Bronx High School of Science where I went to high school. And uh, the reason they had to permit me was because it was a two hour trip each way on the subway. And, you know, I was like 13 years old. So it was a big deal. Um, and uh, I wanted to go there because it was, you know, a special school that specialized in, in science. And it was an opportunity for me to, you know, step in the path that I had chosen of becoming a scientist. And uh, the other thing I would say that they sort of encouraged or at least allowed was I would join these different societies. Um, I joined one um, for essentially for astronomers that used to meet at Carnegie Hall and everyone there was like a full professor. I don't know how I was accepted to it. I was like a little skinny 14 year old with a giant afro and somehow they they allowed me to be a member and so I used to go there. I actually saw a really famous lecture by Carl Sagan uh, uh, back in the day. And the audience was full of, you know, amazing uh, writers like Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. And so I got to have uh, a meeting with those people, uh, got to shake their hands back then. And, um, you know, so I think that what, you know, I would say to parents are to be sensitive to your children's dreams and passions, even if they seem uh, far fetched or um, unrealistic in, in context of where you might be at the time and allow them to either burn out on it or, or take it as far as they can go. Mm. As somebody who found this thing that you love to do at, at such an early age and somebody who works in an academic institution, how do you think about uh, education now? Because I think the thing for me, when I look back at both high school and college and, and part of why I wanted to talk to you was because I, I remember thinking that nothing could keep my attention, uh, particularly in college. I felt that looking back at it now, it's like, wow, I always chose things that I didn't find engaging. And you being in the academic setting, being a scientist, being somebody who focuses specifically on intention, what if you had to design the education system of the future, what does it look like based on your research and knowledge? Well, you know, I, I have a I guess, a broad array of thoughts about the education system, uh, maybe just to focus in on one of them. Uh, and this relates to the work that I do uh, in my my uh, research center at UCSF and companies that I've started they all circle around this same area. But my uh, my observation has been that we've focused our education system largely on information content transfer. And that's really been true since the Industrial Revolution of we needed to educate people on uh, knowledge and information that allows them to engage in the workplace. And, you know, I think this system has evolved. There's a lot more uh, attention to skill development. But what I don't see happening is either the assessment or the targeting of improvement of how our brain processes information, the very foundations of it. So how a young developing mind directs its attention, sustains it, switches it when they need to, how those same skills are used to regulate their emotion and their aggression, how they might feel empathy and compassion for each other on anyone in general. And um, those type of uh, abilities of the mind, which we focus on in, in all the, the entities I'm a part of, 
are just, you know, not part of what we tend to think of as education. And I think that that is a big mistake and that we're paying the price for that neglect now as we see attention deficits and depression and suicide anxiety rise in, in children and young people. Uh, so that's what I, you know, that that's one particular view of education. It's not meant to be all inclusive, and it, sure. it is, it's also not meant to be a necessary replacement for everything we do now. But I feel like we can't just worry about transferring information. We need to build the underlying information processing systems of a developing mind so that it's capable of doing whatever he or she wants and without limitations in, in that regard. So I'm really curious. And this is something that I wanted to talk to you about was how does the the information processing uh, foundation of a developing mind evolve with age? Like what happens between, you know, when we're five and six and, and how does it change as we become adults? Well, the main thing that changes is that we gain more control over how we process information based on our goals. So, you know, we interact with this world around us, our environment, even our internal environment in two two ways. The first is through bottom-up attention, and that's the more primitive, ancient type of attention that uh, evolved really for our survival. So things in the environment that are very salient, you know, very novel, um, demand our attention independent of our goals. And that's what allowed our ancient, even our primordial ancestors, even single-celled organisms of which we, you know, evolved from, to, uh, to sense the environment, toxins and nutrients is where we started. And, you know, it, it has allowed us to survive. Uh, but we have another type of attention called top-down attention, where we direct our limited resources of our minds to uh, aspects of the world that we make the decision to engage with. And this doesn't have to be the most important or the most uh, novel elements, right? So we can reject those bottom-up, more ancient influences on our attention and impose our own goals uh, upon it. And so this ability to have top-down control over how we process the world around us is what allowed humans to create technology and society and language and, you know, art, music, everything uh, is this ability to sort of break the bonds, I would say, that enslave us or enslave other animals to the environment where they just reflexively respond to it. And it's this very ability of top-down attention that develops um, through those years that you mentioned. Um, and it really involves how our prefrontal cortex, which is also the most evolved part of our brain, interacts with the rest of our brain to allow us to control how we process information around us. Mm. Why is it that certain skills, uh, like the ability to learn a musical instrument, for example, or athletic capabilities, uh, our ability to do those things seem to diminish with time. Like what does brain science show us about that? Why is it that it's so much easier to learn a foreign language when you're a little kid? Well, that's mostly related to the plasticity of the brain. You know, it's ability of all of our brains to modify itself. And it does so all the time um, at every level that you can um, analyze it from, you know, the structure of the brain to its chemistry to the physiology, the functional interactions between brain areas. And that plasticity um, is greatest earlier in life and declines. There's evidence for that. I even did some work on that as a grad student. Uh, but it doesn't go away completely. And so it is there. It's just harder to harness. And, you know, a lot of the new technologies that we're creating are trying to um, have, you know, more targeted approaches to, you know, improving our cognition by harnessing plasticity, even when we're 80 years old. But when you're younger, you know, the brain does modify um, robustly in response to environment. So even though you have less top-down control, um, as I just described, that doesn't, you know, that continues to really develop until our early 20s, um, where the brain is myelinating the, and those connections are improving. But this, so despite the fact that as you are a, a child and you don't have necessarily that full control over where you want to direct your attention, your brain is very plastic and you learn um, rapidly. And so this is, you know, this is a challenge for the education systems. You have these minds which are capable of being directed and, and nurtured, uh, but they don't necessarily have 
the ability to direct their attention anywhere they may even want to. And so this is, um, you know, a really and I think it's an evolving challenge as technology has placed a lot of pressures upon how um, young people like uh, to interact with the environment. So this is a constant push and pull that teachers and educators and students will will always be facing. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. One thing I didn't ask you about is what planted uh, the seed for your interest in this particular area of, of brain development and neuroscience? Well, when I was a graduate student, and I guess starting in 1992, so a long time ago now, um, I was presented with the opportunity to study aging brains of all sorts of older animals. And um, I didn't, you know, I was 22, right? I didn't think about aging as being um, an interesting topic at the time. Um, and, uh, but, you know, as I did started reading about it, it, it was something that pulled my attention. And, and I thought that there was something there that I could build uh, my graduate thesis around about how our brain ages in terms of what systems, um, neural systems change as we get older, even as we get older in a healthy way, independent of things like Alzheimer's disease. And so that's how I started studying the brain and aging. I still continue to study aging to this day. 
But over time, as the decades passed and I moved out to California, started working at Berkeley, um, I became interested in a, a, a very, very, when you study it, a very clear aspect of aging, which is changes in attention. Um, and what I was observing in my data and my research was that older adults that were complaining about their memory or these senior moments, um, these were really attention problems, uh, really um, more specifically filtering problems, trying to block out irrelevant information uh, that was getting through the filter and, and creating interference with, with what their goals were, what they were trying to remember. And so with, this is now uh, over like 15 years ago when I first started making those observations. And so with that, I also realized that it was very timely because the technology world, as, as we all appreciate, um, and the amount of information in our lives was increasing. And so, and here I was now in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, where all of this was going on um, in terms of development, uh, technology development. So I, I've always been attracted to the idea of doing research on things that were very relevant to people and also timely. And so as I was observing these attention changes in older adults in my research and also looking at the birth of social media and all the other distracting influences, I was like, oh, this is this is a, a niche where I could focus, where there hasn't been a ton of rigorous research and understanding why our brains are susceptible to distraction, why multitasking degrades performance um, and how this relates to aging and now development. So that's really what happened. Um, I started with aging research and then moved into attention systems more recently since I've been in California. Wow. We'll, we'll start talking uh, about all of that in quite a bit of detail, but I think I want to get there in a way that probably seems somewhat circuitous. Uh, a friend of mine, a friend that I was mentioning to you, the one who's a, a neurosurgery resident at Harvard, I met him for a ski trip sometime last year. And he made the observation that somehow it seemed that my attention span had improved quite a bit uh, since we were in college. And my comment to him was, well, you have to understand, I write books for a living. Like, you can't do that uh, if you don't learn how to sustain attention for an extended period of time. And it makes me wonder what has actually happened between now and college that could facilitate that drastic of a change. Because I can tell you, I could barely sit through a 45 minute lecture at Berkeley. I mean, I was, you know, cute girl walks in. I'm like, okay, distracted. Uh, up. friend walks by, you know, distracted. Like I just, I mean, it was literally, I was counting the seconds until I could get out of there. Uh, mm -hmm. so what happens that, that facilitates that kind of change? Uh, like, what do you think it is from, from a brain science perspective? What has actually gone on here? Yeah. Well, you know, so if you were saying that that was the change that occurred from, uh, preschool to college or, at, you know, after college, then we, you know, it's what we talked about. It's right. that those abilities to not, you know, a pretty girl walks in, that's a strong <laughs> bottom up influence. Yeah. Uh, you know, it pulls your attention, but now, you know, once you hit college years, you, you have the, the machinery to direct your attention. It's there. Now, whether or not you do it is, is a different question. So <laughs> if, we're, if, if we're talking about college to now, it's a different answer, right? Because yeah. I would say, now the machinery is on board, right? Yeah. Um, it's developed. You you have the capability of resisting those distractions. And I think that a lot of it is um, how you sort of style your own um, patterns of interactions with the world around you. Uh, so if you allow yourself to constantly be distracted and it reinforces itself um, and you develop a, a sort of a habit of it where you are used to being rewarded in that way because it is rewarding. Our brains are novelty seeking. And if you are constantly switching to new stimuli, new tasks, there's going to be a higher novelty load and there are rewards associated with that. And so if you allow yourself to do it and never um, make a conscious effort, whether it's um, because of a career or because of a personal decision or because your spouse or your doctor or your teacher is telling you to, then that type of behavior uh, where you're constantly switching, constantly being rewarded by the new novelty experience becomes something that perpetuates. And it's actually really hard to break that, um, that tendency. Now, if you 
I, I imagine from what you told me, made the decision that, you know, this is your, your, your passion. This is where you want to be successful and make your mark and you want to write books. And as you described, when you're writing a manuscript, something of length and complexity, you need to sustain your attention to do that. Um, you start breaking those habits and start forming, uh, you know, the new cognitive pattern of sustained attention, singular attention to a task. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's really because you, whether consciously or not, started engaging um, and interacting with your environment in a different way and started feeling different types of rewards, right? So you can get rewards from doing one thing for a long time in a way that might seem impossible when you start doing it. Sort of like if you want to train for a marathon, that first day when you try to run two miles, it's the worst thing ever. But, you know, six months later, you look back and, you know, now two miles feels so good. Like that type of sustained engagement has a different type of reward structure um, and it's attainable. And, and clearly you've been able to do that. And then that perpetuates itself. Mm. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and actually talk uh, specifically about how people optimize their own sort of uh, environment for uh, you know optimal attention and, and sort of peak brain performance. Like what has to be done in order for that to happen? I know some of them are probably very obvious. And also, I know you know we talked a little bit about you know the way that. Um, you know, screens have really infiltrated our lives, even our kids. So what is the impact on the brain, uh, especially a developing brain of having this much uh, exposure to distracting and, uh, you know, novel stimuli? Because I, I mean, I, we're probably semi close in age, but I remember thinking, you know, I don't remember the last time that I sat around thinking I am bored. I have nothing to do. Like when we were kids, it was, you know, you tell your dad you're bored. It would be like, that's great. Go outside and do something. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, I, I sort of two questions there. Yeah. Maybe I'll start with, um, the, the second one about, you know, how does all of this, you know, what I think of as interference, um, impact developing minds and, you know, the, the jury's really still out. The, the type of research that we need to make the strongest interpretations about what's going on are longitudinal trials that haven't really been done. And, and they're difficult to do for lots of reasons, not the least most because technology is changing so dramatically. I mean, if you just look at what um, kids are exposed to now compared to even five years ago, it's quite different and it's moving um, dramatically. And so it's hard to do the type of long studies to see what the impact of any single uh, new technology is, like social media, when it just keeps evolving. But what we do know is the more acute impacts. It's the chronic impacts that are hard to really um, tell right now. But we see that um, with the accessibility of information sources, uh, young people, um, you know, and I'm using that term generally because it could be college students or preschool students now are engaging in multiple information sources simultaneously. Um, and, you know, what we know from a neuroscience perspective is that they're not really parallel processing them all. Um, if they're attention demanding, they're switching between them. And there are costs, performance costs um, that are associated with each of those switches. And so that's what we see happening. If you just look in, you know, field psychology research, and then if you look at the impact, although a lot of it is still correlational and not necessarily causal, unfortunately, because those are, again, more difficult studies, uh, you see that that type of behavior is associated with negative consequences. It could be school performance. It could be the their um, connectivity with each other um, in terms of understanding body language. And, uh, and then, of course, the really uh, distressing data that's coming out about its association with depression, anxiety, and even suicide. So, you know, I think that we are rapidly trying to wrap our heads around how tools that were designed, at least with the premise of creating connectivity and um, interactivity between people can lead to isolation and anxiety um, at a very high level. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a very important um, area of research because we do things frequently without a lot of uh, thought about what the consequences are because we 
misogynist act sort of instinctually. And then we wind up apologizing <laughs> frequently um, for mistakes that we might have made and then try to play catch up. And I would say that's what we're trying to do right now. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot to be thankful for, in my opinion, about what technology has offered us. I'm a big fan of technology. I'm not a Luddite. I use everything that everyone else has, probably more than most people. Yeah. But I also do recognize that, you know, there are consequences and we need to be thoughtful about them. So I, I want to do a bit of a deeper dive into this. It's something that I've, I've given a lot of thought to over the last year or so, particularly because of the research that I was doing for this book. And, you know, you mentioned uh, depression and anxiety. And, you know, I was just writing about this the other day. Uh, yesterday, I said, you know, if you walked up to somebody's house and you saw what was happening through a window and made all these assumptions about them, that your assumptions would be incredibly inaccurate. But that's precisely what we do. Like we look we're literally seeing everybody's lives through a window, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever that window be, whether it be people listening to me on the podcast, people seeing my Facebook status updates or my Instagram feed. Uh, as a scientist, how do you think about the ethical uh, considerations that people who are building these technologies, like the Facebooks of the world and like the Googles of the world, because I know it, it's kind of a hot conversation right now. How do you think about that stuff? I think that we've, we need to be more thoughtful during the development phases of new technology. I mean, I get it. There's a bottom line that, you know, company, I've started companies, I have a venture fund that I work with. Um, we, we of course need to make profits. I, I am totally respecting that aspect of business, but I also think that during those critical stages where you have this great idea and you feel like it's a good business model and you have the team, you're all ready to go and you're going to start developing. Um, I think that conversations need to happen around is, is this thing that we're going to build going to enhance what makes us human in a positive way? Or is it going to diminish us? And I don't think that, that those conversations had been taking place from my interactions with the technology world. And now there's a lot of apologizing um, for things that were done that maybe, you know, and I'm not going to comment whether they were maliciously directed or just naively um, implemented. But I, I think it's imperative uh, that we are more mature about um, the development process of new technologies. And, I, you know, as you said, it is a hot topic now. And uh, a lot of it is trying to clean up the messes that might have been made already. But I'm more like in, I'm more interested in establishing sort of codes, either of, of ethics or even legal codes to some degree um, that guide our development uh, design principles. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think about it from a standpoint of, uh, I studied abroad in Brazil in 2008. This was right before smartphones became really ubiquitous. And it's funny to talk to my friends from that time period because we remember, you know, we would have these adventures and these stories and, you know, we would sit at dinners for hours on end, you know, four or five hours just sitting, drinking, eating. And I, I can't for the life of me remember the last time I just sat and talked with somebody until it was last call at the bar I was at or I was the last person in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my very friend says, he's like, can you imagine how different our experience would have been if we had iPhones and aren't you glad we didn't have them <laughs> during that time period? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about that in all sorts of ways, like all the embarrassing things that, you know, I've done or my friends have done as we grew up that was not captured and, <laughs> and posted on social media and how thankful I am and how horrified I am to imagine what it would be like being in high school when all of those moments and all those awkward faces are like posted everywhere forever. I mean, it's it's really so it's a, such a different way of um, interacting uh, with with the world than, than you know we experience it's it's hard just experientially to wrap my head around how different that would be and how it would change your behavior knowing that that was the case yeah well I, I mean I always wonder like are we gonna have a presidential candidate who we see you know uh, doing keg stands in a Facebook photo album like 20 years from now <laughs> like it seems kind of inevitable that we will <laughs> yeah <laughs> it does seem that way <laughs> um, well let's do this let's start talking specifically about how we actually optimize our own sort of environment, our brain for sort of peak attention and focus. Like how does that actually happen? Uh, And what is the impact long-term on our creativity, on our productivity? Like where does it lead us? And one other question related to that, uh, I'm sure you've probably read it because it definitely had a huge impact on anybody who does stuff uh, related to attention was Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, where he talked about the fact that these things have long-term impacts. Like he said, you know, sometimes you're doing potentially irreversible damage when you're not taking your ability to manage your attention seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, how I always think about this from a practical point of view is sort of in a stepwise process. And to me, it begins with awareness, um, and a deeper understanding about how your brain works, um, and metacognition so that you're, you know, you're really, um, understanding your own behaviors and especially your own limitations in a way that allows you, gives you the motivation to start creating strategies that you interact with your technology, which is you know, sort of what we're talking about now in a, in a healthier way. Now, awareness is not enough. And, and that's been shown time and time again, knowing healthy foods to eat, knowing about sun exposure, even knowing that cigarettes could kill you doesn't change behavior frequently. And so aware, you know, just knowing all these things is, uh, is not going to be enough, but I do think it is a starting point because if you don't have this, uh, deeper understanding about why you behave in a certain way or how your influences might degrade your performance, your quality of life, it's very hard to be motivated to do something that is, is, is really challenging to do like cutting off 
these influences for a period of time, allowing yourself to uh, form new habits. And so when it comes to, uh, you know, awareness about, I would say, you know, there's three, there's, there's several things that, that I try to share. And uh, they all have in common that they're sort of an evolutionary perspective on our brains. Um, you know, and the sort of subtitle of my book is uh, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Um, and the title is The Distracted Mind. But the, the real uh, underlying premise is what are these features of our brain that have been there all along? And how we can have awareness of them that could guide us, you know, and inform us to make better decisions. So, for example, is what we already talked about, top down and bottom up. Um, once you start looking at the world, like why are you directing your attention in a certain way? Is it top down? Is it because you made a decision to do it? And that's why you are uh, focusing on it, like your listeners might be doing right now, paying attention to this podcast um, or are you focusing on things in your environment because it's just demanding you because it's very bright and shiny and flashing? And, and so seeing how top down and bottom up guides where you point your attention is, is a really important part of awareness. And once you start doing it, you see it all the time. Uh, so that's one thing. So, right. And the point is that bottom up, although it's a more ancient part of our attention and although top down is part of our development, it's still there and it's still essential for survival. So it's never gone. That reflexive response to our environment is something that's really critical. Uh, the other thing uh, that I would say another evolutionary perspective is that although we have this amazing ability as humans to create incredibly complicated time delayed goals, um, so I want to become a doctor, you know, that's, you know, when you're in high school, right? That's, that's like a, a 10 year goal, but even, even goals, it might be weeks or I want to write a manuscript. That's like, you know, I would say the pinnacle of the human brain is that we can create goals. We could set goals like that. But the problem is that we enact goals using our cognitive control abilities, like our attention, our working memory our ability to switch between tasks when we want to. Um, and those skills, cognitive control abilities, are actually very limited. And they have ancient fundamental limitations that don't even really differ very much from other animals. So although we can direct our attention, we can't distribute it broadly. Uh, we have to make decisions about where it is. We can't take in all the information around us. We can only hold so much information in mind, what we call working memory, without the fidelity, the resolution of that information degrading. And when we switch between tasks, although it often feels pretty good and it might fool you into thinking that you're more productive, there is a degradation of the, that information every time you switch. And so realizing these limitations in a, in a deep way and recognizing them, I think, is really key um, so that when you have that goal, you realize, OK, having the goal is not enough. I also have to get over the hurdle that my brain is not going to allow me to accomplish this um, just the way I might uh, imagine it ideally. And so those are a couple of sort of perspectives about, you know, the ancient aspects of our brain that I think is a, is a starting point for then being healthier in how you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. How do you develop uh, the ability to sustain attention uh, over an extended period of time? Because I, mean, I know from um, speaking with Stephen, Scott, Stephen Kotler and, and many other people that, you know, to get to sort of uh, a flow state in which, you know, you write words or even, you know, the surfer, like there is a, a sort of time delay between when you start and when you get into that state in which you kind of finally start to experience sort of the, you know, real joys of being deeply focused on something. Uh, but if you're, you know, the person who constantly task switches, the idea of sustaining attention for even an hour, I know, cause I talk to people and when I try to yeah. tell them one focused hour a day can, you know, produce exponential results. I'm amazed by how difficult people find that. It just oh, yeah. baffles me that an hour seems like oh, such a long hard. time for somebody to focus on a task. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, okay, so starting with an awareness of those limitations. And then one, one last awareness that people probably already know about is that when you try to do what you just described, to sustain your attention on a single task, you're going to feel the accumulation of two things. Likely. One is anxiety. Mm -hmm. And that anxiety could could manifest in all sorts of formats, like the famous FOMO, that you're missing out on something else. And of course, social media has a strong influence on creating that, especially in young people. But the other is, is performance anxiety. Like, what am I not doing that I also need to get done that's on my to-do list? And maybe I should start working on that. So anxiety accumulates. The other thing that accumulates is boredom. 
um, again, the novelty um, is getting less every moment that you spend on that single task. It might have been novel when you first opened up that (laughs) Word document. But, you know, 10 minutes later, it's just not novel anymore. And there's something very novel that's literally just a click away um, or in your pocket. And so I feel like it's really important to start being introspective and and allow yourself to just feel that anxiety and that boredom like wash onto you and just accept it and just take it. And you're not going to die from it, right? It's completely safe to feel those sensations for a while and recognize that that's what they are um, and that you don't have to reflexively try to eliminate them by filling in those gaps that exist in, in, in information, right? So you could get rid of your anxiety just by checking out what someone else is doing or switching over to, you know, to your, um, your email that you haven't answered while you're writing this article, or you could get rid of your boredom by, you know, going on Facebook. But if you just stick with it and try to understand why you're making these responses, that's a really big start. Now, and the practicality is you can't do that for an hour if you're not trained to do it. Mm. It's just like everything else. You know, you need to develop the skills to be able to accomplish something. And, and you know, the tricky part is that you feel like it should be easy because, like, you know, we grew up focusing for an hour. Um, and now you might be in a style where that's something you do very rarely. But you think like, oh, I know how to do that. The How I the practical way that I went about it when I first challenged myself with this goal of being able to focus for an hour because I've done that um, is to baby step into it to first eliminate all of the sources of distraction quitting your you know so if I'm writing an article let's take that as an example I'll quit my email program I the probably the old you know I'll, I'll turn my phone to airplane mode I'll shut my door maybe the only other source of interference I'll accept is music and we can talk about yeah music I do talk about that. yeah yeah we could come back to that so And then I'm working right now. I might say I'm going to do this for 10 minutes and then I'm going to take a break for 30 seconds and then I'm going to do it again. Sort of like the gym, you know, the the interval training approach of, you know, taking a break to restore and then reengage. But (laughs) the key part here in my experience is that if that break is to go back on your email (laughs) or to go into Facebook or Twitter, you are lost. You are not getting back very quickly because those are just like these sinkholes that will just pull you away from your original goal. So the break that I'll take is, you know, I'll do like push-ups in my office or look out the window at nature or put on even a screensaver of nature or do some – or close my eyes and do some meditative breathing not for all that long and then get back into it. And then what I find, what I have found is that those 10 minutes where I could work in a sustained way and then take, you know, a 30 minute break now is 20 minutes, 30 minutes where I just need a break in the middle. Sometimes I'll be like, oops, I forgot to take my break. And, you know, I was able to do it a solid hour. And so it's just like preparing for anything. You, you gradually bring on more and more sustained attention time. Mm-hmm. What, happens neurologically uh when you shift to something like a facebook i know that you know uh kelp and many other people have talked about attention residue and uh, i you know given your background uh, i'd love to hear actually what is happening neurologically uh in the process of attention residue well we show we have some papers that show that using functional mri when you're in the scanner and you have a goal like to remember a face which is something that you know we do all the time and then in the middle of that, we insert another task. Um, you have to identify, you know, this, you know, this picture or this scene. What we see is that the brain networks that involve the prefrontal cortex and the visual cortex, that's how you maintain that information over time, essentially is broken. Um, and a new network for the second task is reengaged. And then that is broken. And then a, that original network is reengaged. We, like you sort of see this network switching we've been able to show. Um, and it's, it's that switch. Not everyone switches back as efficiently as everyone else. We know that as we get older, our ability to switch back is delayed and takes longer. And, you know, our, our data would suggest that it's, and, and others as well, that it's with these switches 
that some of that original, you know, information that was being captured is lost. And sometimes these are just time delays, uh, but we see it present as performance decrements that occur as opposed to if you just held your attention for the entire time. So uh, one question I have is around schedules. Uh, uh, the reason this is interesting to me is because I'm religious about protecting my mornings, uh, mainly because uh, I know that between 6 and 9 a.m. are literally the time when I get the most writing done, uh, the most mm-hmm. reading done. And I, you know, like you said, I, I, I want to come back to the music thing because I, I actually, you know, I'll meditate for 10 minutes and then I will turn on a techno track on repeat and I'll go put my phone out of the room. But I want the headphones. Why? Why do I why do we see? what we do in the morning, like what impact does time of day have on the brain's capacity for attention, I guess is really what I'm getting at. Yeah. You know, look, there's a lot of interesting work on circadian rhythms. Actually, the data would suggest that older adults often do better in the morning. Um, but I think that the, the message that I'd like to give here is that everyone has their own, um, ideal way of interacting um, with their goals and and, and accomplishing them. And it's important to, uh, again, back to that idea of being introspective, understanding yourself, and then making decisions based upon that, you know, so I'm, I'm more in favor of just instead of being over, you know, overly prescriptive, like this is what you should do, spend the first three hours of your day working on something that's most important. I think it's more important for someone to uh, observe themselves when they're at that peak performance, what time of the day, how it relates to when they get their physical exercise, when they eat their meals, do they drink coffee? All these things are so different between every single person. And then schedule. And I I agree with what you said. Like I I schedule things that other people don't or, or I don't see people doing as frequently. Like on my calendar right now, if I take a glance at it, I could see every day there's a schedule for when I go to the gym. Um, if I don't put that there, I know my assistant will fill every single block with calls and meetings. And it's important for me to still do physical exercise. Um, I'll schedule an hour for single tasking. So if uh, and I have that right after we get off this call for an hour. Um, so I am working on a piece right now that um, I'm going to publish in the next couple of weeks. And that type of thing gets eaten up by everything else all the time. And so I'll protect that hour. Uh, from 11 to noon, where I will, again, shut everything off because I am just as distractible by those sources as everyone else and just focus for that hour. And, you know, I might take 15 minute breaks as I get through that hour. So I think that it's 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 not that multitasking or being distracted is, is bad. It's not bad or good. There's no morality here. It's just that if you are informed about how your brain works, you can understand that there is going to be a cost that you pay if you're switching all the time. And sometimes maybe that's fine. Maybe scheduling an hour to just multitask because you're doing a bunch of low level things that don't have time pressure. They don't have like a quality stamp that needs to be associated with it. And so, and they're boring. And so it's a lot more fun to do that. But then, you know, you realize that this is the type of thing that needs singular attention. And so I'm going to put it on my calendar. I'm going to protect that time and block out all the other sources that will derail me. Hmm. A couple of other questions around this. One, like, what impact do does you know, distracting technology like social media and, and all this other stuff, you know, that we tend to do when we're not trying to focus? How does that so I'll, I'll you know frame it with a practical example for context. So let's say that you know I get done and I, I've noticed this as a pattern, but I've never had the science to necessarily back it up. If I spend an evening after a certain time of night, like six o'clock or whatever, and I'm you know checking Facebook, you know clicking on links, swiping on dating apps, you know whatever, uploading pictures to Instagram, I notice a pretty you know severe degradation in performance the next morning. Uh, and I remember Cal talking about this and saying, you know, he said, you know, people have this tendency when they're standing in line at the grocery store, whatever it is, to mm-hmm. reach for their phones and look at something. And he said, what you don't realize is that actually affects your ability to focus when you try to sit down and focus. So, like, what you're doing when you're not trying to focus matters just as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I haven't studied that myself. That sort of, you know, the the residual effects, I guess, what you're saying mm-hmm. of of interacting like that, you know. I feel like our brains are pretty dynamic um, and I'm able to like go in the gym, focus in a certain way 
um, and then switch dramatically to a big giant board meeting uh, that's an incredibly different environment than I was in before. Go back, sit in silence for an hour and write and then move into like a big lunch meeting. Uh, you know, I think that we are really capable of a lot of switching um, between blocks of activities if we train ourselves for it. Uh, you know, in terms of but 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 there are also residual effects on, you know, related to emotion and stress mm. for sure. So if you do something that is is anxiety provoking, um, so you're on, let's say you're a 12 year old that's feeling already that you're not maybe fitting in, in in the optimal way that you wish you were. And then you go on Instagram and you see every one of your friends are having a great time right now. And somehow you weren't invited to that. You know, that's going to have a residual effect. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no doubt. So and, and, and same thing with with stress. Um, so anxiety, stress, depression, all of these um, these impacts that what could feel like very trivial behaviors, like just going on social media, um, could certainly have ramifications, um, in, in a, you know, in, you know, over long periods of time. And then just the last thing I'd like to say is the impact on sleep, mm-hmm. right? So we, we, we have acquired so much important information from research about the benefits of not just the hours of sleep, but the quality of sleep on all aspects of our, of our physiology and health, especially on our brain. I mean, it's where we consolidate memories. It allows the restoration of our attentional systems. And so if your activities at night are displacing sleep, which happens a lot, um, the data on younger people are just like mind blowing how many, um, kids are sleeping with their devices under their pillows so that they could feel the vibration of, uh, you know, a text coming in or a post. And, you know, it's just like dizzying to imagine how that type of disruption when you're young and your mind, your brain is developing might have consequences beyond even the ones that it's clearly going to have on your next day. Uh, so yeah, you know, this is, we're complex systems and we're interacting with a complex environment that is changing dramatically all the time in an, in a way that's rather uncontrolled. And so we're, you know, we're constantly trying to understand all of these moving pieces and, and sleep and, and technology's impact on it is an example of one that I think was overlooked, but now it's, it's quite clear that it's it's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to talking about music because I, I know mm-hmm. you, you alluded to it earlier. That I, I've noticed that because a big difference for me, and it turns out that I'm not alone. Like I, when I asked people about this for research for the book, I remember Stephen Kotler, same thing. You know, same techno track on repeat every day, every morning for like three hours. Ryan Holiday, same thing. Uh, why is that? What is happening uh, in the brain, and and how does music help us with this idea of sustaining attention? Yeah. So technically, if you just strip away all of the nuances of what music does, um, you, you would say it's an interference. It's going to degrade performance, just like any source of, of information that is not the um, focus of your goals will degrade performance. We see that all the time. Um, you know, just having visual information around you, having your eyes open when you're trying to remember something diminishes your performance. We have a paper that shows that including neural data, even just having your ears open to and you know, in just the normal environmental sounds of like being in a restaurant diminishes your memory performance. So we are very susceptible to a negative impact of interference. So technically music should fall into that category. And when I, I think I have to look at this study again, so I don't want to quote it in detail, but that if you look at like non-human primates, like monkeys, you see the negative impacts of, of music on their performance and you see it in people too. So for my, and I don't study this directly, but from reading about it, what, what I have interpreted the data to show is that it really matters what music you're listening to. So music can not can have an effect that overrides its interference, its negative impact on your performance due to arousal effects and also, you know, pushing on emotions, 
and and stress levels. And I think that's sort of how you're describing. You listen to techno music. Yeah. It has a very, very fast speed. It uh, it drives up your adrenaline and, 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 and alters your state, right? It's a state-altering event, which could have all types of positive consequences. But if you have someone listen to music they don't like mm-hmm. while they're trying to accomplish something else – it's an interference. It's a negative effect. And that those have those studies have been done. So if you get to choose the music that you've already determined works for you, then it's possible that it could have positive benefits through its in- influence on arousal, mood and stress. Hmm. Interesting. It's funny because uh, when I was younger, uh, I would try to use classical music to, to study. But having been a musician, having been in the band, when I would listen to classical music, my mind would start to wander because I would start thinking about, you know, fingerings on, you know, valves on my instrument. And mm-hmm. like I would think about what the tuba part would be in this piece that I'm listening to. So it didn't work. And yeah. so techno music, it, it, I think it's exactly an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, I'm sure a lot of your 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 listeners are, are thinking about their own experience with music right now. And, you know, I know this because I, a lot of people have, have expressed it to me is that there'll be certain music they listen to when they do certain activities. So, mm-hmm. for example, I, I find it very hard. I don't know about you, but when I'm writing yeah. to listen to lyrics Absolutely. in music, <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, right? so, so it makes sense from a yeah. narrow point of view because they're in the same modality, right? It's, exactly. You're, you're expressing language. Language is coming in. It's much – I have a soundtrack that you know is all non-lyric music that I found on Spotify that I like. Um, that has the right site type of tempo that works for me when I'm writing. And that's what I listen to. That's what I'll listen to in the next hour when I'm trying to uh, write this piece. But, you know, there are other times where uh, lyrics um, are really beneficial. Uh, So that's sort of, again, the the personalizing your environment, given your experiences and your goals is, is critical. Yeah. So we got about five minutes left, and I know we probably won't be able to cover this uh, in the depth that I'd like to get into it. Um, what has your research shown uh, about cognitive enhancement uh, supplements, things like modafinil, things like the supplements that we see, as well as, you know, I know that microdosing is now becoming quite common for people. I, you know, my own experience with microdosing mushrooms has shown me that, wow, this is amazing in terms of what it's done for attention. Yeah, well, this is a giant conversation. Um, <laughs> we have to bring you back. For, we have to bring you back for a second round. Yeah, sometimes I'll do an entire hour podcast just devoted to this, this, and, and nothing else that we've already talked about. Um, well, then we'll have to bring is, you back for this. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, this is this is an area that's very dear to my heart. It's actually what I work on now. I I studied distraction, multitasking, interference effects, the things that we have been uh, covering uh, for for you know over a decade, but. Over the last six years, I've really switched and, and pivoted my entire research program to not studying the negative impacts of uh, interference, but to develop new approaches to enhancing cognition. And there's a long list of things, including things that you can ingest um, that may have benefits that we use to treat clinical conditions like modafinil, Adderall, or Aricept. Um, and other drugs that we're beginning to explore once again, like psychedelics, psilocybin, and others uh, that are all fascinating and, and the topic of you know long conversation. The area that I focus on in my own research and with companies that I've started is to do a complete flip on the technology story as we've been discussing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, technology places a burden on our brains because of these ancient aspects of how we we function um that's an important context to develop new technology like you, you want to place it in, with in that framework but now how do we create new technologies that are targeted and personalized and adaptive to us that challenge us appropriately with the type of experience that can allow us to develop in a positive way that can improve our attention and our emotional regulation and our empathy and compassion all of those things and so that's essentially how I spend my my entire life is thinking about how we create 
closed loop video games and virtual reality, augmented reality, motion capture, how do we use machine learning and artificial intelligence, all of these technologies that are largely in the entertainment and media domain, how do we think about them as cognitive enhancement tools? And that's what we that's what we develop and that's what we research. Okay. Well I think we're gonna have to bring you back to uh, <clears throat> to discuss all of that because like like I said, I I had a feeling it was like this is potentially a landmine that we couldn't cover in five minutes. Yeah, uh, there's a lot on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well this has been truly amazing. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. I have one final question for you, which is sure. how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Something that makes someone unmistakable? Or something unmistakable. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, it's maybe an obvious one, but, you know, your own uh, unique uh, sort of style. Um, how how do you express yourself in a way that captures what you're passionate about and excited about and not burying it, but putting it right out there that everyone sees it? Mm, amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work and your books? Yeah, so I uh, have uh, several different sources. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I have um, a website for our research center called neuroscape.ucsf.edu. And in the next two weeks, I'll have a website, ghazali.com, where I'll aggregate all these different things in my life, all my podcasts that I've done and talks and research publications and companies all in one place. So that'll be coming really soon. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.